anyway, tonight we're in the third section of of history. The first section was dealing with the ancient church. And then we went into the medieval church last week. And that is uh, during the Dark Ages. And we see how God works through all of these men. And as we saw as... um, Well, the quote came out of that. Was that that Malachi that you're reading from? And and then when we looked at um, other prophets, the minor prophets how those individuals lived by faith and they just gave the Word of God out. And of course, it's not always favorable. And during the Dark Ages, it was not favorable at all. But we saw that there were certain men that God chose out of there. And we don't hear a lot about some of those men that we looked at, but we saw how God kept the church, those chosen ones, in uh, His truth. Uh, some of them, or most of them, didn't have the uh, opportunities that we have today. You know, they didn't uh, really have all the different things that were available. And some of them uh, studied, though, and uh, they had their relationship with God. So, as we look at this, um, there are a couple of different word pictures, word phrases that we can use to get where we're at now as we go into the Reformation. Um, some said uh, Luther used this actually had a, a, a writing of this called the Babylonian captivity of the church has anybody ever heard of that one the Babylonian captivity you remember Babylon the Babylonian captivity of the church was during those dark ages the medieval time whenever people couldn't get the word of God it wasn't preached to them they didn't have any Bibles to read it wasn't in their language they couldn't get a hold of it how privileged we are. You know, we can, in a, in a moment's time, just you know, turn to our Bibles and books, uh, galore, internet, you name it. I mean, it's just everything is available. But they didn't have any of that available. And so that's why Luther claimed it and some of the Reformers, the Babylonian captivity of the church. Another one, a great model was this. After darkness, light. And so the light is now starting to come on. It's flickering because we've had the pre-reformers. And um, there were three major ones that we touched on right at the end last week. You had Wycliffe from England who wanted to get the Word of God to to the plowboy, just to everybody. Put it in the common man's language. Then you had Hus, Czechoslovakia. And he was a reformer. And then you, uh, in Italy you had a guy by the name of Savonarola considered to be a reformer, not quite like the other ones, but uh, you know, in Italy you see a lot of darkness there, uh, obviously why that would be. You also have to think of the Waldensies, the Waldensians that we had studied a, a year ago. And so all these people God was using. And there were many that were unsatisfied with what was happening at this time. But God didn't allow things to break forth like he did during the Reformation. That could have happened back then. But he he exploded in the 1500s and what people were familiar with. You know, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and on and on. But um, they lacked the preaching of the Word of God. It had become almost completely forgotten. The Dark Ages. Now it's coming to light. Now there's an historian. Because, uh, his name is Kenneth Latterette. Uh, he's written some really good church history. And he said this, the prospects for Christianity were not very encouraging. Now, we're kind of looking a little bit at what we covered last week. Most of Asia had been lost. Okay, that's going back to the east. And remember, the church was in two settings. And they were together. There was the east and there was the, there was the east. We'll put it over here. I don't know, is that east? Probably not. That's actually west, but I'm pointing on my way. Okay. Huh? East actually is that way. I guess I could do this, but I feel like a, a flagman or something. But there was Constantinople and Constantine, and of course the church really had power at that time. And then in the West, you think of Rome. But in, in the East, it was even more powerful. But then Islam, from you can think of like the 7th century, started to explode. It didn't take very long. All of a sudden, they started conquering all sorts of lands, different countries. 
And that's a major impact of what it does to the church. Because now the West became more powerful than the East did. The East really became very weak. Islam. Islam today. It's still here. Look what it did. It took all over uh, certain areas and has been there since. And we know we look at it today to see what it has done to the West and Europe. And now it's in our country and we're experiencing it. So now we can relate to this of what was happening back then. If you're a Christian and you see Islam spreading as quickly as it was, you'd be concerned, wouldn't you? Well, there they are. They're doing the same thing now as they did. Anyway, Latterette points out that the church was not only facing the external problems, but it had a lot of serious internal problems. External coming from the outside, internal from the inside. There's no help from the authorities of the church because... The popes were the leaders and the bishops and they were not interested in anything spiritual at all. One Italian said, now in God's church, everything is going wrong. Uh, Let me read this little passage out of the New Catholic Encyclopedia. This is from their own writing. I want to do this so you'll not think I'm exaggerating here as, as one who is a Protestant and saying you know how bad the Catholics were. I'm just going to read from uh, their own source. There were, on the eve of the Reformation, and that's right where we're at now in our study, grave shortcomings in the practice of the church, both in preaching the Word of God and administering the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, that indicated a general tone of fatigue and apathy. A deplorable manifestation of the secular spirit was penetrating every level of ecclesiastical life. The great body of bishops have abdicated their teaching office, not in theory but in practice. Some were incapable of teaching as the least of their uneducated clergy. And that is putting in in an elegant language, we know what was happening and it becomes so dark. Uh, If you go back to the very early days when it was considered to be the Roman church, there was only one church. uh, You had the east and the west, but they were combined. Um, There were things just coming in a little bit at a time. Uh, it wasn't like what we know as the Catholic system today. At least there were truths. You know, you think of uh, Augustine, and and he revived the Word of God for a while, but then it started setting back in, and boom, we we hit into this darkness. Practically everything that happened uh, in in the church came at a price. Money went to church officials, and they supported the the Pope's armies and the St. Peter's Basilica to make it look like a fantastic, great project. Relics were very important at the time because if you have relics, then you're going to attract people. And whenever people come, they are to pay money for those relics. And um, John Calvin said this, um, and he wrote it kind of in satire, but he said that there were 15 skulls of John the Baptist. Oh, this is John the Baptist's skull. wonder how much money that cost to go see that. But they were all over the place. And he also said there was enough wood to make a cross so high that nobody could see the top of it. And today I've heard somebody pointed out to me recently, was it last week? might have been Barb or somebody. might have been from in here. But they said, yeah, they had seen a piece of the cross when they came at school. And uh, at one time, and it's like, I wonder how many schools showed a piece of the cross. You keep adding that down through 2,000 years, and they have pieces of the cross. They're just everywhere. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That, that wasn't you, was it? Okay. Anyway, people pay money. And, you know, the indulgences were happening. You see where I'm leading into right here. Indulgences. We're we're getting ready to hit right into to Luther, right? But we're going to be careful. I'm not going to spend much time on Luther. Um, anyway, I want to begin with a prayer. This this prayer is from Zwingli, and we're going to spend a lot of our time on Zwingli tonight because we never really have. So we're going to try to talk about different people that we haven't talked about before. Um, and this is what he often used um, before he would preach. Let's pray. Almighty God, eternal and compassionate, whose word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, open and enlighten our hearts that we may understand purely and clearly Your words. May they transform us according to this exact understanding 
that we may never be displeasing to Your divine majesty. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. That was from Zwingli. Sounds like prayers we've heard before. Uh, When we think of Reformation, we think of Martin Luther and... Uh, over the years, we have covered Martin Luther several times in different ways, and through even films and, and movies and such. And not to mention him would be an injustice. I mean, you have to, you can't, you can't ignore that. And not that that it gets old to talk about him, but uh, I'm sure most of you have have an idea how it goes. I'll just give a really quick glimpse of him, just briefly. Uh, but the movement that we know of today as a Reformation that it gets all the credit for is Luther. But remember, it's already been set up. And God was already using men, but it exploded, and especially in Europe. And things just took off like a wildfire. It was, it was a revival, but it reformed theology, a way that people looked at God. Uh, Luther was an Augustinian monk. I'll pick it up right there. And he did know some things about... Uh, God was a holy God. He knew He was not. And so he wanted to get all of his sins covered. And I don't know, did anybody listen to Erwin Luther today? Yeah. Uh, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? But I'm not going to cover quite as much as he did, otherwise we'd run out of time. But he did a very good job in a, in a quick amount of time too. But um, he didn't really want to um, dismiss the fact that God is holy, and I am not. How can I be just before a holy God? And he kept confessing his sin, and he couldn't get there. And so that's why he had gotten to where he had really couldn't love God, because he couldn't. And he said, even when he confessed his sins, you have to have a great memory to confess all your sins, right? And this is what Luther said, that was pretty good. But how about the ones that you don't even know about? And Luther knew about that. Being an Augustinian monk, I think he knew about sin. And I think he knew about forgiveness of sins, but he didn't know how all that came together until one day uh, he discovered the truth in an intensive Bible study and he got out of his bondage. Of course, Romans 1 uh, is good for that. Uh, Romans 1, 17, 16, 17, in that area. Um, and he found out justification by faith. And he saw the indulgences. We went to Rome and uh, people paying money. And that's how they can get their relatives out of purgatory. So it's purgatory, people paying money to get them out. Purgatory is not even biblical. Really upsetting. Wrote the 95 Theses, put it on the Wittenberg door. And that was a normal thing to do because that was just... Um, inviting people to challenge this. Let's talk about this at the town meeting. So this would be the place to go to. It's like saying, hey, you know, there you are at the library and uh, you're saying, we're, we're having a meeting here tonight. And he had, so he put 95 of them and basically they're dealing with indulgences. Uh, he's going to expand on that as time goes on. It's not just that's the problem, but that's where it really hit on him. Uh, people really became enthralled and interested about this, and the sale of indulgences started dropping sharply. How, how's that going to affect the Roman church? <laughs> they didn't like that, and he finally gets a papal bull, uh, that's from official paper, a document from the Pope, and uh, threatening uh, excommunication, and he just went out and made, it was a public burning of it. Okay, what's that doing? He has set himself up for problems, right? Uh, rebellion. That, he wasn't trying to rebel, but he was excommunicated. We know about that. Uh, he was banned from the empire. He was protected by Frederick the Great, uh, the Frederick the Wise. He was a German, and um, he's related to Bill Wise, I think. I'm not sure. Just kidding. Uh, anyway, I miss that guy. Um, seemed the whole nation was ready to rally, you know, behind Luther. Um, there were peasants who wanted to, and boy, they really were trying to get into this, you know, because they had been taken advantage of. Only thing is, Luther didn't know what was going to happen, uh, and he found out real quickly. They started killing people, and uh, they got a little rowdy, and there were seeds of revolution going on. He separated from them. He was very angry at what happened there. That's not what he was trying to do. But the thing is, whether he wanted it or not, Germany was divided into two camps. Protestant, Catholic. 
it started. It happened. And as a result of that, as time went on, he started developing different things of how it's supposed to be done in church. And, um, you know, it's like he's separated. That wasn't what he intended, but people are following him, and it's all over Germany. Uh, he brings uh, German language into church. Heaven forbid people will understand the message that he's giving. <laughs> it was no longer in Latin, and uh, he stressed the importance of singing, congregational singing, and the importance of the sermon. Um, confessions of faith uh, came out as a result of all this, and uh, the Augsburg Confession. He uh, actually translated uh, the German New Testament and the Old Testament. People were able to read it. There's Luther. What's happening in other places? You say, well, that's in Germany. I wonder whatever happened to all the other nations. Well, in Europe, it spread quick. And it wasn't just because it went from Luther and then went to, let's say, Zwingli. Zwingli's living about the same time. And and there were already seeds uh, of, I guess you could say, Reformation already happening in places. Um, All the great Reformation models that we know of today... Uh, when you think of Scripture alone, when you think of Christ alone, when you think of grace alone, faith alone, glory to God alone, sola, right? Sola fide, all the solas, the five solas, sola scriptura, sola, sola scriptus, uh, uh, sola gratia, and sola fide, sola de gloria. All of those actually were um, by, actually I guess thought out as mottos from this man Zwingli. You used to probably think, that probably came from Luther or Calvin as they got all together, but he's really the one that put those together and said, what are those again? They're the five solas. That represents Reformation theology. Scripture alone. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. We'll look at these solas real quickly and see how they base these. And there are many scriptures we could go to. We'll just try to do one or so for each one. In 2 Timothy 3.16, everybody knows this. All scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. Right? And So it's coming from God. There are no other writings that come inspired from God. Only the Bible. What we have here is from God. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's the Word of God that does that. We know it's our authority, right? Well, it wasn't the authority of the church. It wasn't the sole authority. Um, The church was. The Pope was. Tradition was. Um... So that's one thing. Now, if you turn to Acts 24, again, Scripture alone. We'll do a couple of Scriptures on this. Acts 24, 14. This is Paul's defense before uh, Felix, if you remember, before he goes to Rome, on his way to Rome. But this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve, the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And that's what Paul said. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and the prophets. That's, that's Scripture. We think of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, right? Of course, the New Testament was going to be written by, well, Paul, for one, as as uh, he would later do and was doing. But um, anyway, that shows that that's what he believed. It was all, everything according to the law and the prophets. That's our authority. We have nothing else. If we look back to the early, or back to the church in those dark ages, they had formulated some other things, and this isn't just the only thing. It's one of them, but not the authority. Uh, So, what's the basis for authority for the Christian? Right here. What's, who saved us? Well, Christ did. Oh yeah, but was it Christ plus Mary? Christ plus the saints? Remember we talked about the saints during the medieval age? And all the prayers that people pray for them and, and the rosary and all that, right? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, we get an answer to that. And I'm sure some of these scriptures, these guys must have mulled over. 
because they're coming out of uh, where the system that they had been ingrained uh, in, in these kind of things. And now they turn to Scripture and it's something different. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. How many mediators are there? One. Only Christ. Christ alone. Now, in the Roman Catholic Catechism, uh, in one of them, like the Baltimore Catechism, I think at one time, I don't think they changed it. I don't think so. I've seen it in prayer books too, where she's Mary is called a mediatrix, a co-mediatrix. And in there they say, they say, Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. And all other mediators are Mary, and boom, they started mentioning saints. What do you think about that? Wow. That's confusing, isn't it? So we have sola scriptura, sola Christus. Well, what is the vehicle by which God saves man? That would be another question they're asking. As Zwingli comes up with this, grace, right? And we have to put alone in there, right? Scripture alone, nothing else along with it. Christ alone, nothing else. Christ not plus something else. Grace alone. Well, they thought they merited. They, you know, all the things that they did was, was a merit. And grace alone. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you're saved through Christ. Right. Well, is it works that merit salvation? No. And they say, no, it's faith alone. Faith alone. Uh, Romans 1.17 I mentioned that earlier. And of course, that's the uh, when the New Testament was produced in Greek for like the first time in the sense that Erasmus has taken it out from the Greek or, or put the Greek together, I mean, and that allowed Luther then to later put it in to German. Uh, so, but he knew Greek and so he studies that along with um, Erasmus' translation. Erasmus actually helped that's it's really cool how Erasmus was used by God in a lot of ways, but he never really was a reformer. But God used him to be very, very helpful in a lot of ways. Right. For in it the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith, or the just shall live by faith. Right? Where did that one come from originally? Out of the Old Testament? Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. Martin Luther read that. That's what struck. But um, Zwingli had too. And uh, so look in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes a knowledge of sin. I wonder what Luther thought as he's finally understanding these passages. Although he's an Augustinian monk, all of a sudden the Word of God came alive to him that had never done before. Look in verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith, faith alone, in Christ Jesus, for all those who believe, there's faith, but there's no distinction. Look at verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace, grace alone, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Anyway, uh, Romans really answers a lot of those questions, doesn't it? So, who gets credit for this salvation then? It's God, God alone. God gets the glory, doesn't He? We can't even add something to it. And say, yeah, but I believed. But we're already seeing that He gets us the faith. It's glory to God alone. So there are the five solas. There are the mottos that Zwingli had that summed it all up. And He had four, I think maybe four of them, but glory to God alone was really His whole emphasis on this anyway because he found out that it was all about God's glory. The honor and glory of God was the theme that ran through all of his theology. So Zwingli plays a key role 
If Luther's great theme was justification by faith, then Zwingli's great theme was this glory of God and not having any other gods before him. Anything that takes the place of God there. Um, how did Zwingli get converted? Well, it was over a, a quite a, a long period of time. It was slow. Um, he was, you know, he's like a bishop. He's in the Catholic Church. All these guys came out of the Catholic Church. Luther did, Zwingli did, Calvin did. That was that was the only church there was. <laughs> right, right. So they and and so they God uses that, uh, and so he takes these slow steps. And so it wasn't a storm like what happened with Luther, but you know how God is? Sometimes He knocks people down, and other times it takes like years to bring them. You know, God uses so many different ways. But, um, you know, you see how God works in all of this. So the same thing that changed Luther, you know, is really it eventually, it's the same way. Um, whenever He reformed, we, we realized that I don't know much about Zwingli. Some of you are saying, I don't know anything about him. But he's part of the big three, but he's kind of put aside on the, uh, on the side. Luther and Calvin are the huge names. Someone describes Wingley as the third man of the Reformation. He was a shadow of Martin Luther. He was a shadow uh, to his successor, John Calvin. Matter of fact, John Calvin did his most of his work like in Switzerland. Well, this is where... He's from. He's from Switzerland. And he was there before Calvin was. And he didn't live very long. Um, lived a short life. Uh, he spent 12 years in Zurich. And this is probably one reason why he's not known very well. Because there's only 12 years that he was in Zurich, Switzerland. And if you look at Calvin, he was uh, there like in Geneva like 24 years. Like double the amount of time. And, and Luther was around for a long time. But yet, Zwingli was one of the great reformers that, that we are. Um, when he began to preach in Zurich, he announced that he was going to be preaching in the book of Matthew, and he's going to start at verse 1. Well, can you imagine that? <laughs> I mean, imagine that. And he's going to, he said, I'm, I'm announcing now that I'm going to preach through the book of Matthew. And he preached through the book of Matthew. He preached through the New Testament. He preached through books of the Old Testament. And we often think that, well, didn't people do that before? Not really. It's, this is an odd thing to be preaching the Bible, but to be preaching through it in that way. So quite a pulpit that he uh, had in, in the city there. Uh, you know, sermons, if they had sermons, were very short. They really weren't from the Bible and they, they were really little small parts of the liturgy. And that's really all they did. Uh, people didn't have Bibles on their own. Uh, they, very, they knew really nothing about the Bible. And here you have a guy expounding on this. Do you guys remember the first time you ever heard the Bible taught? Or at least the way that it should be taught? <laughs> Might have been a little bitty, bitty guy, so I've always heard it all my life. But then when you heard it for the first time, let's say, with somebody explaining what the passages meant, I think a lot of that has been lost in our time. Um, but with Reformation theology that has come back, you see a lot of guys doing expository preaching. It's not too odd to us, is it? But uh, to a lot of people it is. Zwingli believed that the, the Christian was not only to preach the Gospel, but he was to reform the society. And so, I think he's using biblical things here. As he's reading through here, and saying, here's what we have to do. You know, now we got to, we got to put this into place, and so he said, not only are the the preachers to do that, but he says all the people here they need to be educated, they need to be uh, be able to bring this truth out. He'd studied the scholastics, people like your uh, Thomas Aquinas, you know, the great philosopher, and he had great appreciation for that. But he's also studied from Erasmus. Erasmus helped him, and because he was interested in the language. Literature. It's because of these guys that one reason uh, is we have Scripture today because they're the ones that help set it up for us. I mean, you know, we take it for uh, granted. Well, that's, we just have the Bible. It's always been here. <laughs> but these men, you know, gave their lives for it. And uh, Zwingli uh, had a love for the, the church fathers, so he read about them. 
Um, and so he read Luther then, and he became what you could say maybe a, a Swiss Lutheran. But then he said, Luther propelled me to eagerness, but you know, Luther had already been writing. And so he got to read some of his works. But then as he kept studying the Bible, he started distancing himself from Luther a little bit. He says, I do not want to be called a Lutheran, for I do not learn the teaching of Christ from Luther, but from the Word of God. So it wasn't that he was lifting him up there, but um, at the moment he needed that uh, influence. Luther was a significant influence on Zwingli. But hold hold that thought, though. Um, the Swiss movement was not just a, a footnote to the to the German Reformation. You have Germany reforming at the same time you have Switzerland. They're neighbors, aren't they? So, I mean, this this is all happening about the same time. And so it's alongside Luther's movement because he's, they're not getting uh, the exact theology that Luther came up with. Close to most things. But you have two important movements happening here that really are in agreement in most things. He was in Switzerland. There's a great turning point. This, uh, I'm going back now to when all this started for him. The city comes together. The city had a church. The city had a state in Switzerland. City-states. And it's 1523. All this is about the same time that Luther's doing his thing. And uh, there was a disputation. And they had to make a decision. Can you imagine this? You have a church. Are we going to be Protestant? Are we going to be Catholic? What are we going to be? Are we going to stay to what we are? Or are we going to do this new thing that's coming along? See, it's, it's not really defined yet. So which way are we going to go? Well, Zwingli had everything to do with it. And God, of course. Because Zwingli was there at the right time, at the right place, wrote these 67 articles. It was much better, much more depth than the 95 theses. You can say, well, you're getting into detail like this. Well, what he did is he drew up all the main principles of the Reformed faith. He says, here's what we believe on this. Here's what we believe on this. Remember the five solas? And then other degrees. If you don't have guys like that, that's why I say church history is so important. We don't want to lose history. Because if you have guys like that and you see how God works through them, then they expand and then they bring back truth that had been lost for the most part. And so God uses him to bring that and it's called Reformed faith. There was Lutheranism and there was the Reformed faith. And what's happening here, Zwingli is representing the Reformed faith. Calvin will follow him and that's the Reformed faith. So you have... Catholicism, and then you have Protestantism. But Protestantism, which is one body, now is going to have a split real quick. And there are two schools of thought in Reformed faith. The Lutherans and the ones who are Reformed, and that takes in Presbyterians hugely, but also it took in Congregationalists, Baptists, so, what's that? Um, no, well, that would be later on. But those were three big ones. Congregationalist, uh, 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 which later Jonathan Edwards was part of. It's now known as United Church of Christ. As liberal as you can be. Not even. Yeah. But um, anyway, that's, that's what happened. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, there was differences between Luther and Zwingli. And... Like on, on the solas, they're tight. They're cool with that. And uh, matter of fact, Luther, I think, was really uh, a lot cooler in his theology than what a lot of present-day Lutheranism is today. There's a lot of things where they kind of um, watered down what Luther had. Uh, Melanchthon had a lot to do with that. And that was a guy that was sitting right under him. Anyway, let's go back to Zwingli. Zwingli had to fight a lot of people, of course, when this, this happened, but he's turned them to reform. Uh, uh, he had an unhappy clash with Luther. Him and Luther met. It was over the Lord's Supper. And ever since then, we've had disagreements in the body of Christ on the Lord's Supper. And it may not seem like a big deal, but uh, it was. They agreed on everything else when they'd gotten together. It was in Marburg, and this is in 1530 now. This is how far we advanced. Hey, we're not moving as fast as we were in the other one. We did a thousand years last week. 
we've done 30 years now. <laughs> um, they came to a disagreement and this is where Protestantism broke into two parts, uh, Lutheran Reformed, and the issue had to do with how do you understand the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper? And Luther couldn't buy the exact thing the Catholics had, but he did read the passage and he says, this is my body. And he you know, kept saying it in Latin. This is my body. This is... And so he had to say that the presence of Christ was there in, under, around, in those elements. Christ is in those. That means His body is in those elements. All right. Uh, you know, okay. You know, that's, that's, that's strange. To Zwingli... He says, no, no, no. That's the, and Calvin said the same thing. No, the, the, the body of Christ is not in this element here. That's, he is not here in his physical. That created big problems. And so, but Luther wouldn't say that it turned into, the elements turned into Christ. That's transubstantiation, and that's what the Catholics believe. He said, what's the difference? Well, it's not much. But the basic difference, they're saying, all of a sudden, magically, what, what you're looking at there when we have those elements on Sundays, well, in that bread is Christ. And it's turned from, it's no longer bread. It's really Christ Himself that you're eating. Now, that's Catholic theology. Yeah, that's what it would be because you're taking... You're taking that that bread. You're taking that's Christ. That's the Holy Spirit, and that's Him. That that is Him, literally. And uh, Zwingli can't go along with that. He says, "Yeah, Jesus is present in the Lord's Supper, but spiritually." I think he was a, he was very close to what Calvin believed. Um, so he he also said he believed in a memorial. I can see that too. It is you know do this in remembrance of me. But I believe he took it a little bit further because Calvin thought maybe he might go along with that. But Luther and Calvin, even though they never met, uh, Luther thought that he was on the same vein of thinking that Calvin was. But Calvin was saying, really, Christ is present here, but not physically. His, you know, his body's not here. He, he's, he's in heaven, right? So the Lutherans with their Christology and that kind of thing have uh, maintained that. And that's why you have such a difference in 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 some ways, um, anyway, two sides went away. Swingley, Luther, Luther says, "I'd rather drink blood with a papist than mere juice with the Zwinglians." <laughs> That's Luther. You got to know Luther. You know, I mean, he, you know, he's brash, but it took a brash man to do what he did. And Zwingli tried to reach out to Luther. Luther was in no mood to compromise any whatsoever. And he said, your spirit is different than mine. I'm out of here. And that was it. And today, 500 years later, you have the Lutherans in the Reformed theology and you have Reformed faith, which would be where we're at. As we believe in Reformed theology, the things that they came up with was scriptural, you know, uh, and yeah, what he is saying that it didn't. It really, to me, it's it's probably just a matter of words. But what he's saying is that those elements are still there. That's the real elements. The Catholic theology is saying no; those elements turn into Christ. He said the presence of Christ's body is in the elements along with the bread that's still there. Now, do you get that? That's Luther. Yeah, Catholics, there was a a change. That's some kind of a magical thing that happened. And that's transubstantiation. His is consubstantiation. Very similar, slightly different because he couldn't buy what they were saying. And then you have the the other side of the Reformed theology, and that has what 
has split the church more than anything, although Luther maintained a lot of the other things in worship where Zwingli and Calvin started taking things out like you, you know you, you think of the, the vestments and the images, the crucifixes, um, special feast days, all the different things that were in the Catholic Church, they pretty well you know took out because it's, that's not in Scripture. How can we worship with those things? But Luther said, well, if it's not mentioned in Scripture that it's bad, then we'll keep it. And so you can see the, the two roads that these took. And later on, you have, you're going to have uh, groups off the Reformed. And then Luther, Lutheran churches have had all sorts of breaks and splits too. So you know, as long as uh, the church is here, it will continue to have more and more splits over uh, different things. But this was considered to be a major thing. And, and if you talk to a Lutheran at one time, I said, well, you know, we're similar in a lot of things though. Oh, no, we're not. That's what they would say. No, we're not at all. I said, yeah, we are. I mean, look at Luther's uh, view on bondage of the will. You know, his best work. And about election. And depravity of man. You know, we believe in that. And uh, some of them would say, well, our take on election is a little different than what Luther had. And depravity... Uh, I even believe Luther believed in perseverance of the saints after reading Bondage of the Will. I don't know what anybody else thinks. That's my own take on it. But I think he was a, like a five-point Calvinist as I look at Bondage of the Will. Anyway, he would never have said that. But um, Getting near the end, speaking of Calvin, okay, that, that's, uh, that's from a guy we never hear of too much, Zwingli. Is that, is that kind of helpful? You can see where we got a lot of our theology from books that help us as we read Scripture. We get it from here, but unless we have somebody to help... That's why there are teachers. That's why there are preachers. That's why there are people that write books and write theology. But if you get the wrong ones, you can be headed down the wrong road too. We're geared by this. It's all by this. But still yet we need help. If, we're, if, we're, if we would say, well, I can't listen to any other man, well then... That means you can't listen to any other preachers or teachers. You're all on your own. What would happen? You'd have absolute chaos. Everybody would be taking the Word of God in their own way and there would be no agreement on anything. And so that's why it is helpful to have those works and those people done. What Calvin did, and he was uh, played a foremost role in all this, He's the, in the front rank on the rank of the reformers, but he was like a few years behind these guys, even though he knew them. He's in, he's from France, but he has to leave France. He writes a handbook of the Christian faith called the Christian or the uh, the Institutes of Christian Religion. Now, the Institutes of Christian Religion is one of the best works that has ever come out of the church. Because what it is, it systematizes different doctrines. God, Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say about hell? What does the Bible say about the devil? What does the Bible say about depravity of man? This really hadn't been done before, like what he puts together. And so that's a systematic theology and some of um, almost seminaries that are any good at all will have that. They'll teach it. They'll use other systematic theologies too. But um, Calvin was very, very theologically sound. He's got a bad name, a bad rap today. Why is that? Right? But uh, he, was, he was very uh, mild-mannered. He was uh, one who wanted to give the Word of God to people. He preached it in an um, expository way, preaching through books. Systematic theology, his great emphasis was on the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God in grace uh, for salvation, his power in history, and a sovereign will that's found in Scripture. And the theology that we have today, I like to say, is biblical theology. It's Jesus theology, it's Pauline theology, above all. But if you want to put it down to where men have shaped this and helped us, understand these as they come together uh, Augustine and then we think of these reformers and then Calvin was able to put it like no man had ever put it before and it was then able to train men who came along he was going through he was going to Basel running away from France because of the persecution 
and he was stopped there by William Farrell, Farrell being uh, uh, actually educated and, and from France, uh, says, you can't go any further. God tells me you have to stay right here. So he, he preached at the church there. So later they kicked him out and then he left for a few years and they had him come back. He preached the Bible and he preached the Bible verse by verse. There's another one who did it too. And that was a strange thing. But uh, he wrote commentaries. He defended the faith. He, he set up um, a seminary, uh, a college ed- education for men to come in, not only from France, from, from all over. One of those guys was John Knox. You heard John Knox? He's going to take it back to uh, uh, Great Britain. And uh, of course, you think of the Scottish reformer. Um, and a lot of other men that came in. They're called the kind of like the second stage of the reformers. And they learned it from Calvin. And a lot of those guys come from France, get educated, and they're like missionaries that Calvin and those reformers sent back to France to go set up churches where they literally had thousands in each of those churches. And there uh, was almost like a revolution that was happening. And unfortunately, uh, the persecution there was incredible. Terrible bad. Thousands got wiped out. Uh, the opposition was unbelievable. Um, there was a, uh, Here's a guy you probably never heard of. I hadn't until Monday. His name was Jacques Lefay. Has anybody ever heard of Jacques Lefay? Interesting. He was a bishop. Just before there was Luther and Zwingli, he was a little bit before their time, although he ran into their time, but um, he discovered justification by faith. Well, Luther is the one that discovered it. No, it's always been there. But it was hidden by the church. The church doesn't want you to read the Bible. You might discover Christ and grace and justification by faith. And once you start reading in there, and see, that's that's the key... It's not that people can't read the Bible alone and understand, but it's just helpful as God has been able to shape men and be able to help us understand even more of it come together. But we can read the Word of God and if we really pursue it. He will give us truth. So he read the Word of God, discovered these kind of truths, introduced the Scripture to his students. Now he's a Catholic bishop, but he introduces this to his students in, in, in the school there. And they taught that it is God who gives us, by faith, that righteousness, which by grace alone justifies one to eternal life. And then he says this, Oh, the unspeakable greatness of that exchange. Now this guy wrote this and said this before Luther or Calvin ever said anything. Or Zwingli. His name is Jacques Lefay of France. No wonder they had such great revivals. But you don't hear too much about the French revivals because of the grand persecution, inquisition, and all those different things that were happening um, by the Catholics. They would kill people. Today, they still dissuade people to read their Bible. If you read the Bible, you read it with our help. If you go to a Bible study, you make sure we are there teaching it. Yeah, right. There was another guy by the name of Louis de Berg, and he hated Luther. He abhorred Luther and everything that he came out with. Another Catholic guy, nobility, but he was guided to the Bible. Opened the Bible up, started reading it. It's like a lion. And boy, once the Bible comes alive. And he entirely devoted his life to the cause of the gospel. And the guy that he abhorred, Luther, who Luther was considered to be uh, pretty hard, <laughs> you know, and he had to be do what he did. Well, they said that Louis the Bird was worse than Luther. <laughs> okay. We probably better stop there. But there was a, in Holland, you have a reform movement happening, all sorts of persecutions there, and the Inquisitions in Spain had something to do with that. And everywhere you go along the roads, you would see gallows, you'd see the wheel, you'd see the stakes, you'd see trees along the highway where you'd see carcasses on them and limbs of Christians, uh, reformers who had been hanged, beheaded, or roasted. These men gave their lives. Long before there was freedom, though, 
Holland had a Reformed church. Most today of the churches there, uh, probably, of course, a lot of them have probably turned liberal like they do anywhere else, but um, they had a Belgic confession, and Holland remains predominantly Reformed and Calvinistic to this day. Um, so a lot of these roots, there was an Arminian controversy that started there. Arminius was from there. And he grew up under the teaching uh, where Calvin had taught and uh, Knox and those gentlemen. Arminius. Jacobus Arminius. And uh, he took it and then it was taken a little step further after he died and they drew up the remonstrance. Uh, And so when you believe in the five points of Calvinism, there weren't any five points of Calvinism. It was really the five points of um, the Arminians. And the Calvinists had to come back saying, no, that's not right. And that was done in Holland. That was in the 1600s. Isn't that the Daisy? He loved it the, the tulip? Or, or the Daisy? Yeah, yeah. He loved that, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah right. He loves it. He loves it now. Exactly. If you play that out, it's true. You're good one minute, and then, uh uh-oh, you can lose your salvation another minute. Now he doesn't love me, I sinned. So it's performance, isn't it? It always goes back that way. Theology always will go back to the way of man. Anyway, a lot of things that we didn't cover, and uh, that was really about up to 1600, something like that, but I I left a lot of things off there. Is it kind of helpful? to see some of those things that maybe we haven't covered. Things I hadn't covered before, I hadn't read that much of. And so it was kind of exciting just kind of going through it. We'll we'll have another week or two of this leading up to Reformation Day on Wednesday, October 31st. And I don't know what we'll have. If anybody has any ideas, make some kind of a special day for us. Maybe, I don't know what we'll do. But if somebody has some thoughts, let me know. We did do the Luther movie one year. Last year, I think we did... Something, but or, yeah, it was Halloween last year too, wasn't it? You know, on on the recording, you hear the sound, and it sounds awful. I bet I've done that all hour long. Yeah. Does that bother you guys? This table has got to go. 